Hi. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Frankie. I'm an alcoholic. I have a sobriety date of January 27th, 1997, and for that I'm very grateful. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love the opportunity that I've had to grow up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got here in my 20s, and now I'm in my 50s, and life is absolutely amazing and it was absolutely not amazing when I got here. Um, I see a lot of people that I know in here and I just want to tell you guys it's just so good to see your faces. We've been locked up for so long and uh, and it just makes me my heart smile when I get to see my fellow, fellow alcoholic because the truth is I am an alcoholic, I'm a real alcoholic and nothing has changed my life so much as Alcoholics Anonymous has. Um, I'm going to tell my story the way that God gave it to me. And I used to think that God made a mistake when God gave me my story. Um, I thought that God hated me. And I thought that God had it out for me. You know, oh, and real quick too, can I just say, Kat, thank you so much for your, your share and for showing up and saying yes to come and speak with me. I appreciate you and I love you and I feel just as blessed to have you in my life as well. Kat is one of those women who have made great impact on me, my sobriety, and the way that I see the world and my fellow alcoholic. Um, so yeah, so growing up, I grew up in a house that uh, I had a stepfather who liked little girls and you can put two and two together i was a little girl it was a very uncomfortable childhood i was scared all the time i was always on edge and my mother had told me things such as god punishes the sinners so the things that were happening to me i thought was god punishing me and my mom would tell me if you if you're good then god will be good to you and if you're a bad girl god will punish you so I spent the majority of my childhood trying to be as perfect as possible. I tried to follow every rule. I never lied. I didn't steal. I didn't cheat on anything. I just was, you know, I was always as perfect as possible. And I walked around like this with my fists clenched and my, my head constantly running and still I'm getting abused and I'm wondering what am I doing wrong? You know, why does God hate me so much? And why does God love other people and not me? And when I was 12 years old, I had had enough. And my mom actually asked me, she said, does your stepdad ever touch you? And we were driving home from church and I looked at her and I was afraid to say something, but, but I looked at her and I said, yes, he does every night. And I remember my mom told me, I promise you, he will never touch you again. And that's the only part of the conversation I remembered because I felt, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get taken care of, someone's going to protect me. And I felt like maybe, maybe God did love me, maybe it was gonna be okay. And soon after that, <clears throat> my stepfather did not go to jail. Um, I ended up going to foster care and living with another family. And it made me angry. You know, and the big book talks about, there's a line in there, we made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Which means that my decisions are going to come from how I feel about me, what my sense of self is, what I think I deserve, what I think I should get or not get. I'm going to make decisions based on that. And being a child growing up in what I grew up in, my decisions were um, 
not full of self-esteem, not full of I'm worthy of love. My decisions were I'm a piece of trash, I'm worthless, and so we'll do this or let's show up in this way because nobody cares about me anyways. So I made a lot of decisions based on self, which absolutely placed me in a position to be hurt later on in life. And, and then, um, I remember when I first found drugs and alcohol and, uh, it was not like I searched them out. I knew what they were, but I didn't search them out, uh, because in trying to be a good girl, I would never have done anything like that. You know, I would always do what the right thing was. But 1983, uh, I went to my first high school dance and I love telling this story because it's, because it's just the truth, you know, and it's funny and then it's not so funny, but it's the truth. So I walked in onto this campus, you know, and before that, you know, we were good church people. So I never got to wear a pair of high heels. I never got to wear a mini skirt. I never got to put makeup on. I wasn't allowed to do anything like that. Now in my new foster home, they didn't give a crap about anything. They're like, absolutely. You want high heels? You want a mini skirt? Sure, let's do this. You want to cut all your hair off? Because my hair was down to my waist. And I cut my hair like Pat Benatar because she was the coolest thing that I could possibly, you know, want to look like, right? So I cut my hair like Pat Benatar. I got a mini skirt. I got a pair of high heels back in the 80s. Don't ask me why it is, but it was super cool to tie a bandana around your thigh. So I tied that bandana around my thigh and I strutted onto that high school campus for my very first school dance thinking I looked like a million bucks. And some guy saw me and walked up to me. And he bent down and he smiled and he said, <clears throat> are you sure you're at the right school? Because I looked so young, you know, and I was like, yeah, of course I'm at the right school, you know, like what's your problem? And didn't think anything of it until about five minutes later when his girlfriend's best friend pulls her up to me and says, that's the girl. The guy was her boyfriend and she, her best friend saw her looking and so she brought her to confront me and um, the girl beat me up and, and uh, during her beating me up, she knocked me to the ground because I couldn't stand in the high heels very good, you know, and, and she knocked me to the ground and she broke my arm. And it was a pretty bad break. And where my arm is bent like this, uh, it had moved to the middle of my forearm. And so I looked down, I immediately knew it was broken. I heard something like a tree branch break. And I looked down at it and if anyone understands what it feels like to be abused and what happens, there's not a lot of reaction when people abuse you or harm you and, or hurt you. At least for me, there wasn't. And so I didn't react to her at all. I just looked at my arm and I looked up at her and I said, um, you broke my arm. And she said, I'll break your neck if you ever talk to my boyfriend again. And I had no idea what she was talking about. So I just stood up and I walked across the campus and I found a security guard and I said, I think my arm's broken. And he looked at my arm and he turned sheet white and he goes, yeah, your arm is broken. And they sent me to the hospital. When I went to the hospital, the doctor <clears throat> helped me with the pain in my arm. He said, I'm going to give you something that's going to make you feel better. And he gave me codeine. And I had never experienced anything like this in my life, you know, but he gave me the coating. It didn't do anything for the pain in my arm, but I specifically and distinctly remember laying in my bed after that on the coating and closing my eyes and thinking to myself, oh my God, 
This is the best thing that I've ever felt in my entire life. I don't feel dirty. I don't feel any shame. I don't feel any pain. I don't feel anything. I need to feel nothing for the rest of my life. And six weeks after the cast was off of my arm, my doctor told me, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you any more pills. There's no way your arm hurts that bad. You've had the cast off for six weeks. And I was like, no, no, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad, you know? <clears throat> so I had no idea that that was drug seeking at the time, you know, but I specifically remember doing it and remember that there was a panic when he told me that I wasn't getting any more pills. So after that, um, you know, I talked to my friends at school about it and they presented a solution. See, I had found a solution to what was going on inside of my head. The pain, the frustration, the suffering, the fear, all of that stuff. I had found a solution and I needed a new solution. And they introduced me to alcohol. And by this time, after I got the drugs in me, I no longer cared whether I was perfect or even good or anything. I wasn't a stray A student after that because I didn't care about my grades. I didn't care what you thought about me. I didn't care if my room was clean. I didn't care about anything. And when they told me, hey, we got, we got this, I was like, great, give it to me. Let's take it. Um, alcohol was no longer this no-no for me. It was like, just give me anything. I don't care. And I started drinking alcohol. It was very easy to get. My my foster family was very well to do. There was alcohol everywhere. And uh, and so I consistently just got a little bit of alcohol every every different type. My favorite was Bacardi. That was their favorite too. And uh, I started getting trouble in, in trouble in school. First time by accident because I would say yes ma'am, no ma'am before I started drinking. And then after I started drinking, a teacher would say something and I would say, I don't give up what you think. And so I got it put into detention, you know, and at first when I walked into detention, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? You know, like I'm 13, what am I doing with my life? I got detention, oh my God. And then they told, they gave me the rules for detention. You can bring two things. You can bring books, you know, homework, and you can bring a drink. And I was like, oh, I don't have to go home. I got to stay after. I, and so that's what I did. I got in detention every day purposely and I brought in a Bacardi and a Coke in a can, and I brought in my homework. I did no homework, and I sat and I drank by myself with, well, there was a lot of other people there, but they didn't talk to me, so we're good, right? It's just me and my alcohol, and that was good. I started getting into a lot of trouble at that period in time, and I met some really cool people. I think they're cool people. Um, I was one of the very first punk rockers in my town. I met these people who were like, we don't give up about anything. And I was like, this is awesome. I don't want to give fuck about anything either. How can we be friends? You know, and they're like, absolutely. You don't have to qualify. You just got to hang out, you know. And so I, I, you know, my hair was already cut short. I started shaving it. Um, and I found people that accepted me. And that was really important for me because I had always been the church girl up until that point and I wasn't the person that everybody accepted, but now I've found my group. It didn't matter. Back in the old days, you didn't have to dress like a punk rocker to get accepted. There was punks and mods and, and all kinds of people, you know, hanging out with each other. It wasn't like clicky like it, it turned into. But um, during this time, 
my mom decided that she was going to bring me back home. And I remember being told that she was going to bring me back home. And I was not happy about it at all. I didn't want to talk to my mom. I didn't want anything to do with her. As far as I was concerned, she failed, you know. And I wasn't afraid. I mean, I was still afraid to talk back to her, but I wasn't going to. Was it, I didn't want to communicate with her, bottom line. But they did. They took me back home, and then um, I remember standing on my balcony after going back home, and my stepfather walked out behind me, and my stepfather said a couple of words to me, and this is the last thing I remember for probably a good year of my life. He said, and I could feel him standing behind me. I knew he walked out, and he looked at me, and he said, I just want you to know now that I have you back, I'm never letting anybody take you from me again. And I don't remember anything after that. I just remember feeling like, oh my God, I have to find drugs. I have to find alcohol. I have to find something. I can't exist like this. And I did. I found drugs. I found alcohol. And, um, and I guess I stayed high because I couldn't tell you. You know, early in sobriety, I thought, you know, I need to recover this lost time in my head. But as time has gone on, I've realized that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Maybe God wanted to protect me from whatever. And, um, and so I don't remember it, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. Um, once again, alcohol and drugs was a solution for me at that time. Uh, soon after that, my mother, not soon after, some time after that, my mother and my stepfather divorced. And my mom and I moved to a new town. And when we moved to the new town, I I remember there wasn't a lot of punk rockers or people like me in that town and I stood out and I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to get eaten alive in this place. Like nobody looks like me. People are kind of being mean and so I got aggressive. I was already angry and I became a very aggressive person. I was not only aggressive, I was cruel. People try to make me feel a certain way. It doesn't really matter. I would attack you verbally or physically. For me, it didn't really matter. I was just an aggressive, angry human being. And um, started dealing drugs and started doing the things that people like me do, you know. Um, I met my first boyfriend, my first real boyfriend. He was my first higher power. His name was Michael. And... Uh, and we started dating. And you know what's really funny? Speaking of the low self-esteem, do you want to know why Michael qualified as my man? Because I didn't even want to date him. I wanted to date his brother. But his brother didn't pay any attention to me. And Michael did. And Michael drew my name over and over again on these papers. And I saw these walls tagged outside of the places that we frequented. And it had my name spray painted on the walls. And I was like, oh my God, somebody spells their name exactly like me, right? And so I'm at this guy's house trying to hit on him and I see this manila folder on his his uh, coffee table and I open it up and there's my name over and over and over again in a picture of me drawn and I'm like look at him he goes that's not mine that's my brother's and I was like well who's your brother you know like this guy likes me who's your brother and so I met his brother and oh and he just happened to be Back in those days, um, there were underage nightclubs everywhere, and uh, I would go dancing all the time, and there were dance contests, and there was this annoying guy who used to constantly enter the dance contest and, um, and go up against me, right? 
And sure enough, that guy walks up and it's him, you know, it's him. And I'm like, oh my God, it's that annoying guy, but he likes me so much. So yes, yes. Hi, let's be boyfriend, girlfriend. Right. And of course, you know, the funny thing is what we put out to this world is kind of in my experience and my belief, what we put out to this world is what we're going to, you know, attract back to us. Um, birds of a feather flock together. So I'm a girl who knows abuse and who doesn't care about herself and has very low self-esteem. And this is a guy who beats girls. So he was a perfect match for me. So after a period of time of being with him, he started beating me on a regular basis. He beat me. He raped me. Um, I, I was, I was being considered for a television show at one period in time. And I, uh, the guys came to the nightclub to meet me and I was sitting there talking to him or to them. And he walked up, hawked a big loogie in his mouth, grabbed me in front of them, kissed me and spit this giant snot thing in my mouth and then smiled at me and let me go because he didn't like the fact that I was getting attention from someone else. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how do I experience or what do I do? Like, this is awful. And, um, and I had to figure that out, you know, right in front of them. And that's the kind of stuff he did. We would go out to nightclubs and I would be sitting on his dance, his, um, lap while there was a dance contest going on. And he would be turned with his head behind me, making out with somebody. And I wouldn't even know cause I'm sitting here studying the competition. Right. But that's the kind of guy that he was. And, you know, I realized today knowing alcoholics and knowing addicts and being one myself and in recovery and meeting a lot of people in their disease, that that's what he was experiencing, too. When he was a kid, his dad shot himself in front of him. He was a police officer, committed suicide in front of his his three boys. This kid had some pain, you know, and he did not know how to be in a relationship. And neither did I. And the sickness was, I think, part of the, the excitement, you know, as sick as that sounds, the sickness was part of the excitement of this relationship. I would antagonize him. He would get angry. He would beat me. I would cry. He would tell me he loved me and he'll never do it again. And he would hold me and then I would feel love. And that is how I went about getting love. I learned to play the victim or be the victim. Um, I dated him until I was 18 years old. And when I was 18 years old, I had an experience with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which didn't even click with me until years later. I met this kid in Alcoholics Anonymous. My boyfriend was in jail for stealing cars and um, a couple friends introduced me and, and he was in the junior police officers, you know, of the city that we were in. And, and I hung out with them, not for any other reason other than God made it happen because we were so different people, you know, but we ended up hanging out. And when we were hanging out, he looked at me and he goes, I don't know, like something along the lines. I don't remember the exact words, but something on the lines of, I don't know why you let him treat you like that. You're worth more than that. And it was the first time anybody said you're worth more than that. No one had ever said anything like that. Up until that point, no one had ever told me that my value was anything. They just showed me what my value was and it wasn't good. But when he said that to me, I remember him, you know, hitting me and I was like, well, what do you do? And he's like, I used to do drugs. I used to drink alcohol. And I'm like, well, what did you do? He's like, oh, I'm in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, oh, what's that? You know, and he's like, blah, 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 big book, 
get a sponsor. I was like, what's a sponsor? He goes, it's somebody that tells you, you know, basically what to do with your life. And I was all, that, you know, I was done. The second he said that, I was done, right? <laughs> done. But he planted a seed, which didn't come to fruition until, you know, eight years later, but he planted a seed. I didn't want AA. I didn't think I needed AA. But I remembered him telling me about AA and I remembered what he was like and how he told me his stories and how I identified with that. So that day that we had that conversation, uh, he drove me back to my house and I went to get out of the car and there was Michael standing there on my, on my front walkway. And I just remember thinking, oh my God. But during that conversation, I had made a decision that I was going to break this relationship off. And I walked up and Mike was there and I told him, you know, we had a conversation. It got pretty heated and I told him, I'm done with this. I'm, we're breaking up. I don't want to be with you anymore, you know. And I had broken up with him many times before, but this time he knew. I could tell he knew that I meant it. And I didn't care what happened, you know. And he looked at me and he said, I don't think you understand this. He said, I will effing kill you before I let anybody else have you. You will always be my bitch. And for a split second, that resonated in my head. And then I looked at him and I said, fine, kill me. Please do me a favor. Put me out of my misery. I would rather die than be with you. And that's the way our conversation kind of left off. Um, then he told me, all right all right, you want to do this? He goes, I will make sure that you never forget me. And I didn't even know what that meant, you know, but it was one, in my mind, it was one more of his promises to whatever, you know, something to try and hurt me. That night, he left early, earlier in the day. That night, he came back into my bedroom and I was with a bunch of my friends partying in my room. And the door flew open and he walked into my room and he smiled this crazy smile and he came straight up to my face and he looked me in the eyes and he said, I love you, Frankie. I hope you're happy here. Watch this. And he pulled a gun out and smiling, he put the gun to his head and he pulled the trigger. And I watched, you know, they say that the eyes are the window to the soul. And I didn't understand what that meant until the moment that I saw that happen because I watched him go from insane to shocked to, oh my God, to I'm so sorry, to nothing. And he just fell onto the ground. And I stood there and I started screaming and I remember the taste of blood in my mouth because I screamed so hard that I think my throat was bleeding. And then I went into the closet and I just screamed and screamed and screamed. And my mom called 911 and the police came and the ambulance came. And as they tried to revive him, I screamed at them. Don't let him die. Don't let him die. And my head told me, you should have just stayed. This is all your fault. You killed him. And that's what I sat with. And I was an 18-year-old little girl. I was not prepared to stomach, let alone think through what that did to me. And for a long time, I became a very empty shell of a person. And I didn't even know that I really lost time 
until I met up with a friend after I got sober to make some amends and she told me what it was like to be around me after that happened and I don't remember any of it. And again, I think that's God just protecting me. But I'll tell you one thing I did need. I needed drugs. I needed alcohol. And I needed a new solution. And so I drank. And you know, the funny thing is I quit drugs, but I drank and I did pills together for the next eight years. And I tried every imaginable remedy to make myself feel better in my addiction. If I become a mother, maybe I'll be better, right? So what do I do? I find another guy who beats me. I have a child and I'm in no condition to be a mom. So I give him away to his grandmother and his grandmother was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, she never tried to push AA down my throat, but she knew I loved to read. And so she gave me a book and it was this blue book. I'm sure you guys have seen it. You may have a copy yourself. And she gave me this blue book and she wrote inside of it, have a wonderful journey. No, wait, sorry. She just gave me the book. I read it, gave it back to her, said, that's a great book. Um, too bad it doesn't apply to me because it's got some great things to say. And she said, if you ever want this book back, you let me know. And I thought that was strange. And eight years I did, uh, later I did, uh, right, seven years later I did ask for that book back. And she wrote inside of it, have a wonderful journey, love Nancy, you know. And that's still my big book to, the, to today, uh, 24 years later. And it's t falling apart, but it's just got so much life in it, my life in it, that I just can't get rid of that book, you know. Um, like I said, I tried to make myself feel better. I tried to find some way of experiencing normalcy. And I did not know what that looked like or even how to begin. So I have this child, I give him away. I go, I drink more because now not only do I have all this other stuff, but I failed as a mother and I hate myself even more. And, um, you know, to be honest, uh, the reason why I gave him away was because his dad not only beat me, but his dad also laid his hands on him. And when that happened, that when I was, that's when I was done. It happened one time, but one time was enough. You can beat me. You can treat me terrible, but do not beat my son. And I told his mother, I gave my son to her and, um, and I moved on to drink more and I created more wreckage and I ran more and more away from myself and what it was like to be me. I had two more children. I got married. Still an alcoholic thinking if I'm married now, this will make me behave and I'll be a better person. And it still did not work. Every imaginable remedy to feel normal. And one day when I was 26 years old, I was in a group there was this lady who taught um you know uh personal development and i really loved her groups and she spoke all the time and i was sitting in there and she asked me a question she goes you ever thought about getting sober you ever thought about going to alcoholics anonymous and i was like no not really she's i go do you think i should and she's like yeah i think it might help you and i was like 
sure, I'll try it, you know. Maybe this Alcoholics Anonymous thing has something, you know, might might help me. Yeah, I'll go. But I still did not think that I was a bad enough alcoholic or that I was even an alcoholic, right? I would joke and say I was an alcoholic, but if you called me an alcoholic, I would be like, I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink too much sometimes, you know. Um, but somehow God magically created this experience. I dropped to my knees. I got fired from another job. I punched my boss. He 86 me from the property. I got let go, told me don't ever come back. And that was one more job I lost because I was angry. And I fell to my knees in my front yard and I screamed up at the sky. I don't love me. I don't even like me because I was enraged with what my life was. I said, but everybody keeps telling me you do. And if you do, you need to help me. And somehow the next day I ended up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked into that room. And like Kat said, you know, I saw like the cool kids. I saw the people that I would hang out with and, and they were happy and they were laughing and there were friendships. And, and I was like, oh, th th this is amazing, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, are they gonna let me stay? You know, are they gonna think, cause I don't know that I'm an alcoholic, like I wonder if they'll let me stay, right? And um, so I went to my first AA meeting and I sat through it and about two shares in, I lost it and just started bawling because I felt like there were people that understood me. I all of a sudden didn't feel like a pariah or like some kind of a mental short bus person. You know, not that there's anything wrong if you rode the short bus, but you know, like I just felt like I belonged and my ego did not want to not belong. You know, so I told them I had eight years of clean time because I had stopped drugs eight years before that. So I could at least be like, okay, look, I'm here. I got time. You know, the funny thing is they made me a secretary the very first meeting I came to. And I had no idea what that meant, but I'm saying I'm eight years, right? No idea what they meant. But I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, you got to come every single day to this meeting at the same time. You get, And I was like, okay. And they're like, and every, I think it was Wednesday, your job is to hand out the readings and make sure that the meeting happens so that people can stay sober. And I felt like I had this job here. I was like, oh, I got to do this. I will help these people out, these poor alcoholics, right? I got honest 90 days later. I was like, look, I'm not really eight years sober. And everybody's like, yay, it's about time. Because nobody was fooled, right? They did not shame me. They did not guilt me. They did not kick me out. They just loved me and they patiently waited for me to get better, to get honest. Back in those days, they were very blunt, you know. I was told things like take the cotton out of your ears ears and put it in your mouth. And I was also taught that I was in a very serious group. I was taught that uh, if you had less time, you sat in the back seat of the car and you don't talk to people who have more time than you unless they ask you um, that or ask you, you know, to talk to them. Like it was very, very odd. But for me, I'm so loud and I'm so boisterous and I'm so outspoken and I'm so full of shh that I needed somebody to tell me to shut up. I needed somebody to look at me and go, you don't know spit. I needed somebody to be like that. 
And they were just harsh enough to me for me to be like put in my place constantly, right? Also, I had that kind of personality that if you were abusive to me, I felt like you saw me. And that's what I was used to. And so that's what I responded to. And for the first, I think maybe three, two, no. For the first two and a half years of my sobriety, that is what I experienced. And I love this group. It is also, it is, it is the the park. Yes, you can go to the park, honey. So, um, where was I? Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch has been my home group since I was a newcomer, right? And, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. That was super cute. Um, and Wild Bunch was there and they were harsh and they were honest and they were just blunt with everything. And my sponsor was very direct. I was not allowed to do anything. She basically created my life for me and told me, you're going to do this. 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 If I called and I whined, she was like, you're going to go be of service. I don't want to hear your whining. You get out of yourself. You go to a, if, if you're feeling bad about you, you need to get out of yourself. You need to go to a, a rehab or a sober living and you need to ask them if you can scrub their toilets. And I was like, and, and that's what I did. When I was new, they, they had ashtrays and coffee mugs and they washed, we washed ashtrays and we washed coffee mugs. And when I was new, I was told that I should constantly be of service and that I should constantly open up. And if someone asked for me, me for help, I need to say yes. And guess what? I'm here 24 years later. And that really, really, really worked for me somewhere around that time though. I started to feel very, I needed some love, you know, I needed some love and I don't think that it was wrong the way that I was sponsored in the beginning. I thought it was perfectly designed for me, but at some point I needed love. And I remember asking this lady Barbie to sponsor me. And if you look in this room, she's sitting in this room and this lady taught me that I was worth love. She spoke to me in this sweet, sweet angelic voice that was just, it just made me feel like, like I was special. And she worked through those steps with me and she was my sponsor for eight years, eight years. And I learned how to continue to be of service, but also how to open up and start becoming unconditionally loving with my fellow alcoholic and with um with anybody you know it's not just the alcoholics i learned to love i learned to love my fellow humans because of her i had great adventures i started stepping outside of my comfort zone and really embracing and loving who i was because as we worked the steps i found out who i was more and more and more and she taught me how to um how to pray without feeling shame and without feeling like I was begging. She taught me how to be grateful. She taught me how to just be, how to have self-esteem. And I will forever be grateful for her. She also taught me many other things. Barb, I don't know if you're okay if I share this. 
but uh, I think you will be. Um, at one point, uh, she had double-digit sobriety, and she left Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. And she taught me that no matter how much time we have, we only have today, and that we cannot rest on our laurels, and that um, that we need to be working a program and consistently, you know, doing what we need to do. And she also taught me something else. Today I am her sponsor. And she taught me that Alcoholics Anonymous is secular, cyclical, cyclical, circular, whatever. If we give and we receive, right? And it doesn't matter if we have more time or less time, she still teaches me. Experience is important. She's taught me how to love, how to forgive. And that's all Alcoholics Anonymous. Any sponsor that we have, if they are working a program and they are working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, will be able to hand that to you along with God. Over the years of working the steps, I have gone from a woman who looked in the mirror and used to spit at myself, used to say mean, cruel things to myself, judge myself. I've learned how to love myself unconditionally. I've learned a lot of things in Alcoholics Anonymous about judgment and about how there is no need or room for judgment. Because when I was newly sober, I was like, I'm Miss Super Sober, and this person should be bringing more God in, and maybe they'd be happier. This person should do that, and maybe they'd have a better program. What I found is that, no, God, God gives everybody their path, and God walks along that path with us. And one person's path is going to look one way, and they're going to need this specific stuff that God puts in their life. And then this other path is going to look another way and they're going to need this specific thing that God puts there to help them. I used to judge people in Alcoholics Anonymous and I still have a you know problem with it because I'm an alcoholic, you know. But I used to look at people and I used to think, that person's not working a good program. I work a good program. That person's not working a good program. That person needs to be kinder to people. That person needs to, to check themselves and stop telling people how to do it, right? As I'm telling people how to do it. What I did find is there are so many different personality types, so many different alcoholic personality types that we need all different kinds of alcoholic personality types in AA to be able to connect because I may connect with one personality and another person may look at me and go, oh my God, you're so annoying, you happy, stupid lady, right? But they may be, they may need somebody, like I needed somebody to yell at me. I needed that in the beginning. Thank God there were people here just sick enough to yell at me, <laughs> you know, because I needed that. I couldn't hear anything else. So who am I to look at another alcoholic and say they need to change? I love supporting my fellow alcoholic, understanding with that patience, tolerance, and love that that big book talks about. I need to remember that I need to work my steps over and over and over again because every time I do, a new woman is showing up working those steps. I'm not the same girl that walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I continue to work the steps, I continue to grow. I continue to uncover this stuff that is not me and discard it where it needs to be discarded. I am not ugly, dirty, 
um, annoying, I mean, maybe I am, but uh, worthless. I'm not those things, but I carried those things around as though they were part of me for way too long. So the steps don't change me. The steps remove everything that is not me. So I can return to who God created. Step one is like, I'm powerless. Yeah, we got the alcohol thing, powerless. But nowadays, what else am I powerless over? Because remember, alcohol was just my symptom. It's up here, my thinking, that is the problem. My thinking, my behavior, my actions, my reactions, that's the disease, the dis-ease. So what am I unmanageable with now? I can work that first step over and over and over again, whatever I feel unmanageability. My version, not anyone else's. Second step, you know, be restored to sanity because I don't know about you, but the, I have become insane. Thank you. I have become insane in Alcoholics Anonymous numerous times over, and I've had to be restored to sanity. I've had to turn my will in my life over, 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 over so many times. And you know, in the beginning, I thought this is such a hard thing, this third step, because turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. Oh my God, it's, it, this is so big and so hard and how can I commit to this? But I missed that special word in there. Three words actually, made a decision. It didn't say that I turned my will and my life over. It said I made a decision to turn my will and my life over. And that's a never ending constant thing. Once I make a decision, and that's all it is, I make a decision, then I open up the doors for many possibilities. Because now I made a decision that I'm gonna at least allow God in, right? And doing that, turning my will in my life over, is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's, the, step three is the, just the decision. All those other steps is the action of turning it over because when I do four and five, that is me turning over all this stuff to God. When I do six and seven, I'm turning over my character defects. I'm deciding what I'm going to keep and what I'm going to let God have, right? Step eight and nine, I'm turning my will and my life over. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to acknowledge my wrongs and then I'm going to go and I'm going to be willing to step outside of my comfort zone and make amends and making amends is not me saying sorry it's mending a mend i'm mending the things that i broke and then some kind of a freedom happens which is freakishly cool after you make amends you make one amends and this cool thing happens that you're like whoa that that doesn't have the same power it used to have Oh my God, when I made amends for being a control freak, when I was finally able to like admit that I was a total and complete control freak, trying to control everybody, everything, your program, my program, everything, right? When I finally admitted to myself and then I went and I made amends to the places that I had been doing that, it was like all of a sudden I could just admit, yeah, you know what? I'm a control freak. And it didn't feel as bad. It was just something that I got to acknowledge. And then I got to work the steps and turn this stuff over. And I got a freedom 
Freedom from the bondage of self that I had never felt before. Every time I make amends, and you know what I'm going to tell you, I have made amends to my son, the one that I talked about in the beginning, I made amends to him. And guess what? In the beginning, it seemed like it was all going to be okay. And then he made a decision that, that just, I'm not for him. He's not willing to forgive and he's not willing to forgive, forget. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't want you in my life. I don't want my daughter and my son to have an alcoholic grandmother. And it didn't matter that I was 20 years sober at the time when he said this. It didn't matter. He feels ashamed of me and who I am. And you know what? That should really bother me, but it doesn't. I mean, it bothers me that I can't have him and my heart is broken. It truly, truly is. But his opinion of me doesn't have to be my truth anymore. I did what I was supposed to do. My job is to keep my heart open and be there if he is ever willing to let me into his life again. And God, I hope he does. You know, God, I hope he does. My other two daughters, I am an incredible mom. I have my phone on do not disturb and those are my kids that keep calling over and over again and making it ring. Because today they want to talk to me. Today they love me. I have a granddaughter who's probably my best friend. I think she's the coolest person that God ever created, you know. And my daughters don't feel uncomfortable about me being with their kids or having their secrets or just trusting me with, with their depth and their beauty. They're not afraid of me anymore. I have a husband that I'm married to who is, in my opinion, the hottest guy in the entire world, which doesn't really matter, but it's kind of cool. When I look at him, and I don't mean like only his looks, I mean like his soul is just so hot. You know, he is just such a great human being. He's sober, he's funny, he's friendly, he's honest, he's great. And he allows me to be me. Thank you. He allows me to be me and he accepts me. And we've practiced being honest and vulnerable and loving with each other. I haven't had a craving to drink in a really, really, really long time or do anything like that in a really long time. My job today is to show up and be of service to my fellow human beings and those members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it really works. And I don't know if I'm gonna be here next week because alcoholism is a tricky, scary disease. But I think that if I continue doing the work, I have a chance that I'll be here next week and possibly next year. You know what I mean? Alcoholics Anonymous has given me freedom and a new life. And when I look in the mirror today, I smile and I wink at myself because damn it, you come a long way, baby. <laughs> you know? And uh, I've gotten friendships and bonds. You know, Pej is one of my best friends. Kat is one of my close friends. Barbie... I don't know that I could ever love another human being as much as I love her. You know, I've gotten friendships that if my life was completely falling apart and they were in the middle of getting a surgery and I called their phone, they would answer the phone and be like, Doc, we got to wait. I got somebody that I love that needs me. You know, like that's the kind of friends I have in my life today. I've traveled all over the world. I was homeless when I got here. I have a beautiful home today, a beautiful life. And you know what? That's just stuff. But I am the richest person in the world on the inside. And that is where I want to stay and where I want to remain. So I guess I'll do my best 
to continue to bring God into the deal. Because that's the only thing that works. Either God is everything or God is nothing. And if God is everything, God is every problem, God is every gift, God is every person, whether I agree with them or not, God is everything or God is nothing. And so my opinions need to just fall to the wayside and let me just love and understand that I don't understand everyone else's journey. I don't even understand mine. But if I can show up and um, just support in the best way with love, honesty, willingness, and truthfulness, the world just might be a better place for those that come after us. So thank you so much again, Kat. Thank you for your share before this. And uh, I love you guys. Thanks for letting me share.